0: Welcome to the Crater Podcast, a weekly show where we discuss all the JavaScript news that's happened on crater.io this week. This episode is for Friday, December 30th, 2016. Welcome Crater fans. I'm your host, Josh Jones, along with my co-host,
1: Ben Duguid.
0: Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey. Uh-huh. It's our last show of the year. Yeah. Two days' time. It'll be 2017. has been,
1: so, been a crazy year.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely been a crazy year. So rather than necessarily like recap the crazy year, I thought we could do like an end of year episode where we talk about like what we think the future is going to be. We could probably mention a little bit of the craziness up front. Certainly, like in the grand scheme of things, it seems like the world's gone nutso with. Britain leaving Europe and uh, like Trump getting elected, even though no one thought he would get elected. Like it's just been it's been kind of crazy. <laughs> well, and and JavaScript fatigue. And JavaScript that. fatigue. That's right. That did happen this year. Yeah. Like that feels so old, but that I I feel like that was maybe in February or March or something. But yeah, you're you're totally right. Like we totally got that new JavaScript fatigue meme. meme yeah. Of, uh, can't talk today. A lot of stuff happened. Yeah, man, I don't know. Like, maybe closer to the hearts of the crater community is, like, Meteor's seen a weird shift, right? And we've done a couple shows on that. certainly been a little controversial as of late. We've seen Aaron leave the community, the Meteor community. And even yesterday, he... In a post that they're shutting down Kadira, but they're doing it in an awesome way, right? Like he's open sourcing all the code and then you'll be able to do your own deployable version of Kadira, which is quite funny because it's like the thing was a a DevOps challenge for them. Yeah. I've got to imagine running your own is going to be, it's going to be hard. Like you want insight to help your app stay up, but you're going to have to debug and help stay the app tracking app stay up.
1: Need insight for your insight. Yeah, he built his own database, didn't he?
0: I don't think so. They were talking about it. I don't know if they ever did. I think they were still using Mongo, but they had to like, the data collector was like fronted in Node, and then like they had, they weren't using Mongo sharding, but they were sharding on their own in software land. So like, if you, if your app started with an A, you went here, if it started with a B, you went to this Mongo shard, essentially, really just separate databases. Gotcha. Theoretical sharding, I guess. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's been a fun year though. Like we've seen the the rise of things like GraphQL. Like that definitely was not really on my radar at the beginning of the year.
1: And a, yeah, and Apollo along with that for Meteor.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely saw some exciting stuff coming out from them. Like they're getting view integration. I don't know. I'm, I'm super, super excited for 2017 and where it's heading. And like, honestly, uh, I think if you want to know, like where my head's at with what technology is going to be, I finally got the CraterConf JavaScript edition up for 2017. Uh, I've got eight of the speakers listed. I actually have 10 speakers. So I'm going to put two more up today. And then I still have two slots I have to fill, but we're we're getting there, and uh, I think a lot of the technology that we're going to mention today is a lot like i've I've purposely gone out and picked some speakers for a lot of this stuff as well for the conference because I just think like that's where things are heading, and it's going to be super exciting and interesting and yeah, it should be fun yeah definitely so uh let's let's dive into it for me, the number one thing that I kind of learned about this year and was excited to learn about was uh, serverless, right? So like AWS Lambda on the back end and serverless gives you an easy way to take your node code and deploy it directly to AWS Lambda. Is it considered a framework? I mean, it's yeah, a, I, I'm, my,
1: pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's a framework serverless, I think it's serverless.org, right?
0: Serverless.com.
1: .com, I was wrong. Yeah, I know that they plan to support Windows functions because like, at this point, I know Google has their Google Cloud Functions, I believe it's called, and Windows has, or Microsoft has Azure Functions. Yeah, so they're all functions as a service is what people call it. So basically, you just code out um, one endpoint. And I mean, pretty typically, I don't even know if Serverless supports Java stuff. I know it does Node stuff, and I and I think they all do Node and Java maybe Python as well, but I'm not too sure about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, to me, like I got to see, uh, actually a double helping of it at space camp and, uh, I've got some videos that I can, I can get up shortly, but I was super excited to just see like how easy it is to work. Right. So like for me, one of the tools I use all the time in my business is Zapier. And I feel like, uh, AWS Lambda and serverless is like, zapier on steroids right like it's just like this you you have even more access and even more code available to you to run to like execute these things and so you're building little functions that have like inputs and then they run some code and then maybe they have some output right and the interesting thing they were showing is like messaging back and forth in one of these talks, and it was like they were taking inputs from Twilio through SMS and then inputting it into a DynamoDB and then outputting that onto a web page. That was uh, super interesting to me. And then, the, like, you had to go both ways, right? Like, if someone put something into the web, then that needed to, like, go into Lambda and then shoot back out over Twilio SMS. And so I see it as almost like an if this then that or zapier or something like that like just with way more power behind it
1: yeah because you essentially have i mean every api is just its own function so i think it makes a lot of sense which we'll talk about later as far as uh we'll get to graphql but i think graphql is a perfect candidate for something like lambda because it's one endpoint and yeah. so you could you can have your your graphql api just hide behind AWS and then connect to various AWS services. Or again, it's not, you know, serverless is not only AWS, but you could connect GraphQL to all these various things on the server side. And I think that that's really cool. And and from my understanding, it seems really easy to deploy and, and play with all of the the serverless stuff. And again, that's kind of the goal of the serverless framework is to make that just really simple as well. Yeah. As
0: yeah. And they talked about that during that talk too, that I got to see it was like AWS Lambda, like the packaging format and the way that you deployed it was really kind of awkward and weird. And so I think that was like the first win with something like JAWS, which then became uh, serverless is that it made it like super easy to start deploying to AWS Lambda. And you know, I, I get to watch like they, they actually changed a little bit of code and did a deploy like live real time during the talk. And like it was super super simple almost reminded me of something like a heroku or modulus or even galaxy like you just do kind of a, a simple code push kind of thing and then it then it's up there and running so as
1: far as the aws side there's so many services there's some page which translates like them all because they all have wonky names and not super intuitive names and i thought it was funny, but they're just, listen, they just, they have it all. It seems like so. one of the things that I've played with a little bit of, of Lambda is the the IOT button. Um, I don't know if you've seen, they have their Amazon dash buttons, which essentially, so I've got a Gatorade one and I just push it and two days later, Gatorade appears at my door, which is cool. Or, you know, razors or shaving cream, whatever you need, toilet paper, fun stuff, but they have the same button only it's programmable. So it hits some AWS Lambda API and then you could do whatever you want. So That's pretty interesting for for prototyping some ideas and stuff. So
0: oh yeah, definitely. And I think you know, in this this day and age, like it's super cheap to deploy to Lambda, right? Like they give you a ton of credit up front. And like you really have to, I think, have something popular to drive it over the limits of what you get up front. And the interesting thing to me is in the day and age of like the Echo dot, or the you know the big Echo, or Google Home, or anything like that. Like, we now need ways to have functional APIs that can like respond to incoming requests from things like Alexa, and then respond to it with the kind of information that you want. I saw an example: someone got uh, a Google Home, and they wanted to be able to say like. You know, they have three kids and like all three kids have to do the dishes and they want to have a rotation. And so he just wants to be able to say, like, whose turn is it? And then say they just did their turn. And so then it like rotates through. This is another example of like, it's just going to be super easy to just write some scripts and deploy it to something like AWS Lambda and get it all working with, with Echo or Google Home. And that's, that's super exciting
1: yeah it 's just cool, so it, as far as the the cost aspect of of serverless, I guess we should we should probably should have started with a little bit of how it works but uh, essentially you know aws they have all these web servers and everything, and they just take the unused cycles and that 's how they 're able to process your your lambda requests just super fast, so you want them to be really fast and then they 're just super cheap so I know at one point I was listening to CodePen's podcast um, and they were talking about they converted a lot of their, their stuff to use Lambda instead of, as far as like transpiling code, you know, less SAS Babel, that yeah. type of stuff. And for almost all of them, uh, the costs went way down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's pretty cool. And I think, yeah, I think in 2017, a lot more exploration and, you know, serverless stuff will be done. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's gonna super explode on the scene this year and become a pretty major thing. And you're right. Like, I think it's the comparison that you're you're going from paying. If you think way back in the old days, you had to buy a server and put it in a rack and like connected the internet, and that's how you got servers going. And then we started to get into the cloud, right? And that was the ability to just go hit a button on a website and it would provision your server. And now, like, we're just saying. Forget all that, I just want a function to run when something gets hit. I don't care where it runs, how it runs, just get it done, right? You give me an endpoint, you run some code, it does what I need it to do, and we're done. And I'm paying you by the second for what's running, essentially. So yeah. It's just uh, further chopping up the cost of the server, I suppose, smaller and smaller.
1: Yes, and I think that it increases developer experience. It does. which is the second thing we're going to talk about so there's been a ton of ton of stuff this year you know we've seen the rise of webpack kind of i guess we could say beating all the other build system or module loaders um i i would say fair fair ish i guess there's still others out there and and i think it's good that we have competition and an open source collaboration. So I don't want them to go away. Things yeah, yeah. like roll up and browser five would be some of the other alternatives, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff has popped up. So it's cool to see, but Webpack is awesome. And I think they're on the third release candidate of Webpack two, mm-hmm. which I know For a while was held back by just the docs. And then they released the docs site. I'm pretty sure it's just webpack.js.org. And if you haven't seen the new docs, so if you've seen the old docs and haven't checked out the new docs, go check it out. Because the old docs, you have to be like a level fifty-five wizard to translate them. It's just like what was happening. The new docs are awesome. Huge shout out to Sean Larkin. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should because he's funny and he just webpacks all the things. So it's great.
0: Yeah, I loved it. Like I was uh digging through Next.js stuff and like they were talking about being able to customize Webpack. And there. And like, he, he just showed up in the comments of an issue. Like, I don't, I don't even think anyone summoned him. It was just like, someone's talking about Webpack. Here I am.
1: Yeah. (laughs) There's a bunch of funny tweets where he will just spend a lot of his time just searching the hashtag Webpack as well as I guess just regular Webpack. And so if anybody tweets about it, he either likes or comments it in like, within like 20 minutes, like the guy is incredible. (laughs) He's just always out there. Lurking the Webpack Twitter, we're gonna. I see guess the the GitHub issues Twitter.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet now, and we'll check at the end.
1: <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. Yeah, he's awesome. And so so there's other stuff as far as DevX. I think Babel, as far as transpilers, is pretty much one, and and they've done a ton of work there. I don't know. There was a history and state of Babel blog post the other day, and I think that some super cool stuff is coming down the pipeline. Like if you've seen the Babel preset environment where you only need to, you, you give it a little config, like, okay, Chrome, the last two versions, Firefox, last two versions and oh, really? Edge or whatever. And it'll only transpile the features that need to be transpiled uh, or node. It can even transpile for node too, which I think is super cool.
0: That's one of those under the covers things I haven't had to mess a whole lot with, but, um, I did kind of brush up against it. I've been playing with Jest lately for testing, uh, particularly like some behind the scenes worker stuff that I've been working on for a client and, It's it's built in Meteor for now. Um, It's it's somewhat portable in the future, perhaps because we're relying on a lot of Node libraries. But we're basically using ES6, right? Because that's like free out of the box Meteor. Like Jest doesn't work with Babel out of the box. Like I, I had to go put in. I had to go add a couple uh, node modules to the dev dependencies and then add a Babel RC. I mean, it was a one-liner. It was no big deal, but like it was so super simple to just get up and running and like just done, you know, like it was, it was uh translating my ES6 for me.
1: <laughs> I think that's more of Meteor being, this just does all the ECMAScript stuff. I mm-hmm. think the ECMAScript package, it just does all the Babel stuff for you. Yeah. Babel RC should... Play really nice with most things.
0: Um, yes, yes. And it did. And it was great. So in general, the direction that programming is heading in, in, in terms of the developer experience, I think is getting better and better. I don't think I could survive without the React Chrome extension add-on, right? Or like the GraphQL stuff or Redux uh, tools or anything like that. Like, it's so amazing that you can just like, pop these into the to the Chrome browser and like they just kind of work out of the box and I'm able to get way more insight than I would through maybe just a console.log like I can really dig into these things and I think that I love that trend and I hope that that continues in the future. super excited about
1: that. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like the even for debugging performance and and, uh, the react uh, whatever version we're on. Are we on 16? 15 or 16, whatever the, whatever the latest one is, there was a blog post on the, uh, the, the browser's console.time API. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. plugs right into the perf. And I think that is so cool. Cause if you're trying to figure out, okay, which of my components are wasting extra time mm-hmm. or wasting time. Yeah. It's really easy. And I think the easier it is to debug performance and debug bugs, you know, the faster, the more productive we are, the more we're able to ship. And so,
0: yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just like react stuff necessarily either. Like Chrome has done a good job. Like I haven't looked at Safari in terms of like measuring performance, but I did like, I've got a bunch of stuff ready for a blog post about like the dangers of SSR. And like, I did a lot of measuring on my local machine to try to figure it out. Like, you know, everyone says like, Oh, do SSR. It's going to be way faster. But in the in the end, it really wasn't faster. Like, spoiler alert for my blog post, it wasn't any faster. You're really just translating whose CPU cycles you're using, right? Either the browsers or the servers. You know, the way I was measuring this is like a lot of people would be like, well, when you're delivering rendered HTML to the browser, it just feels like it's loading faster. And so I ended up uh using window.performance to like test the timing of like getting You know, the the request being sent to the server and getting a usable page back. And like, there's a lot of stuff in there that you can play around with and get timings out of. And it's super interesting. And you can do a lot of performance diving just straight in Chrome. Like, you don't even have to mess around with a lot of things. So, you know, that stuff's getting better and better every year too.
1: Yeah, I think the hardest thing there is just being aware of, you know, having these timings set up and logged and I guess just performance testing really. And, and actually knowing the data, because if you don't know how fast your app is to time to interactive or, or those types of things, you don't even know how well it's performing. So I think we'll see that shift. I think it has been shifting more. There's been a lot of um, just developer evangelism coming out of the Chrome team for, for these things. And I've seen some cool, webpack stuff coming from them too like the uh how what is it called they they try to tell you hey this bundle's too big you should try code splitting that more aggressively um and i think the rise of http2 and and those things will continue to to change the boundaries and change the landscape of, of web stuff so we'll
0: yeah see. definitely that's one of the reasons why like I'm so excited about Next.js now is because it's got like code splitting, it's got SSR, like it's got all those things built in and it's using Webpack under the covers and it's been like a super great experience. So I'm going to like, I'm sneaking Next.js in here as like a good developer experience as well. Um, Something you should check out.
1: I mean I would I check out all the Zeet. Is it or Zeit?
0: Zeit? Yeah. I, I always assume Zeit, like Zeitgeist or... uh,
1: Yeah, I always say zit, but now I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Next.js came from from that team as well as Hyper, um, the terminal, which I think is super cool. It's,
0: I like uh, it. Have you used it?
1: I've used it some. And I the emoji thing was kind of annoying. I I hopped on it right when it came out because at this time we were using Redux and React, and I was like a Redux and React terminal. Like we're just JavaScripting everything. Let's this is amazing. Why not? And why not? <laughs> and uh, uh, Jeff Atwood's law: we gotta JavaScript everything. But yeah, and I've seen some interesting performance things where it actually performs better than some of the terminals. And I know now it works on Windows as well when they released the 1.0 version. Yeah, um, and emojis should be way better now, as well as some of the, uh, like the double character stuff where you wanted like accents on your A's and stuff. Those were a little weird at first, but yeah, yeah. I think those all work now. And yeah, uh,
0: there's still performance issues. So it has to do with like how they're buffering, I think for mm-hmm. like, when a lot of data is coming in basically like if you go cat like a million line file like you're going to kill hyper whereas with like i like term it still works okay <laughs> so something to be aware of like that's the one thing that's stopped me uh from really like jumping on hyper full-time but yeah i totally agree like that team is just killing it in my opinion um with all the stuff that they're putting out so definitely worth a look and now dot sh like deploying to that thing yeah that eh, may have been the easiest thing i've done all year <laughs> it's ridiculous but yeah and
1: they just keep sharing next now there's a bunch of stuff and it's it's super cool there's even a i was gonna start this if it wasn't a thing but uh, a zeet Zite or zeit dash awesome we're just a list of all the, the cool things. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. So go check that out. It's, it's amazing. But uh, Z E I T, right? Yes. And it, it is. So pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So I think our other big topic, it's not like focused on one specific technology. I guess it's like focused on smartphones, but we're going to talk a little bit about mobile. I don't know. I don't know where this is going to end up. In 2017, I don't know what it's going to look like. I think React Native will continue to grow. We're certainly seeing things like React VR and stuff like that. Like I think that that's just going to continue to push the boundaries of like what React is doing and like what React Native can do for you. I think it's going to be super interesting. But I think that there's no consensus here. Right? Like someone, someone, uh, I tweeted out, like what, what do people want to talk about? And someone mentioned they wanted us to talk about like PWAs. Like, I just don't know. Like, Our PWA is gonna be a thing. Like, what is a PWA? Yeah, yeah. I guess we could talk about that. Progressive (laughs) Web App, right? So it's this this idea that, like, you can hit a web page and you're gonna download uh, a service worker and start downloading some assets, basically, to a phone, and you can have. It's it's like. A pseudo app, right? Like it's still right there on the web page. You hit the web page, but now like it can function as an app. And so if you think back to like, Way back in the day, you can say, like, save a web page as a button on your home screen for uh, uh, iOS or something like that. Like, it's along those lines. Like, you can then save that app to your phone and bring it up, and there's some code that is installed on your phone. It's still, like, all handled. It's not done through the App Store anymore, necessarily. I'm super interested in the idea. I certainly. Like there's definitely security concerns because I don't want to necessarily download and run code on my phone that's coming from someone just because I hit their website, you know, like that seems potentially dangerous. Um, I think there is an install process. Like I haven't played with a PWA to be honest. Have you? Do you have an iPhone? I do. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. I think, (laughs) yeah, I, yeah. iOS and Safari are kind of, I think holding that back on um, on the Apple side, and yeah, Safari in general. I don't I don't even know if it supports service worker. I know I've seen I've seen a lot of people hit on Safari for not even talking about service workers and trying to just not acknowledge them. Um, but I've seen it appear in their their plans, at least mentioned. So I don't know exactly what's happening with that. Are you checking can I use?
0: Yeah, I was just <laughs> in service worker ready. It's under consideration. Brief positive signals in five-year plan.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's where I saw it. Yeah. It looked a little... Yeah, so I have played with uh, with PWAs in there because I have an Android phone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if, it's, there's some algorithm and I I don't know how I feel about the algorithm. I feel like it should appear the first time, but maybe the first time is annoying. So I think if you visit it... Last time I, I heard about the algorithm, it was like, if you visit a website twice within like a two-week period, the second time, it'll be like it'll a little banner pops up from the bottom. It says, do you want to add to home screen? Like, no, thanks or sure. I think the only one I actually have added is, is pony They do some, some blog posts and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it basically just looks, I mean, it's just a Chrome tab without the, I think you can specify there. Like a, there's a JSON file or a manifest file. So you can specify some options about it as far as like the name and the icon and stuff. It's pretty straightforward, but, yeah, it appears as just like a, a URL list just web page. And so yeah, it can look like a native app.
0: That almost makes me think of Cordova, right? Like the same thing. You know, I think Cordova's built on You know whatever browser technology the phone has as far as just displaying it as a web page and then under the covers it's just html css and javascript kind of functioning and you don't have that url bar like you're talking about you know you just kind of build out an html app and you gotta like you gotta be a little more careful because you gotta make sure that like when you're linking to things there's a way to get back to like a main screen or home screen if you're getting stuck in the app but I think that's super interesting and I'm excited by the idea. I'd love to see Safari maybe say they're going to do it or Apple come out and say, yeah, we're going to support it in iOS. But there's definitely been like, as far as I know, nothing talked about there. And they have a cash cow that they want to protect, right? In the app store. And this would allow you to potentially skirt the app store. And I think there are security concerns like someone let my parents freely browse the internet and now their machines are full of viruses and malware and all kinds of things. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you could go click download on, on anything.
0: True. So, I, but, mean, I mean, there, there's at maybe least it is a little easier. <laughs> there is a, like a review process, right? Like they're at a five day turnaround. Like it's probably even better than that now, but app story time. Oh, the app store. Yeah, I've heard they've gotten a lot better. There you go. Two days on iOS and two days on Mac. So the average right now being reported, which is pretty fast. But at the same time, like, I think they're running some static code analysis tools and kind of poking through and looking for any red flags. And certainly things skate through. Like, there were instances where, like, malware got into like some library and got into some popular apps and like that still sailed through the app store. But at the same time, like they did catch it. I think, you know, when you remove that app store review process, I don't know. I feel like we're, we're removing some layer of security. I don't know.
1: Maybe a little but I think that, I think the biggest advantage of PWA is so other than having that, that home screen icon and then service worker in general. So you have all this offline support. We're in this age of the, the use the platform stuff where people are like, Oh, you don't even need JavaScript frameworks. And there's, there's different ways of optimizing. And I think as we see, you know, Facebook and Google and some of these companies really try to bring on, because I forget the number, but there's still like a billion people or there's a lot of people who still don't have access to internet. And as we see these kind of developing countries or developing areas come online, the network is going to be the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. So optimizing over the network with things like GraphQL, so you deliver the minimum payload, as well as you know that layer of caching that service workers and PWAs can provide. Um, I think is a pretty huge advantage, and and again, I think this is something we'll see more prevalent in 2017.
0: So for sure, hopefully Google and Apple can get along. <laughs> hopefully, that'll make it better for everybody. Speaking of. You know GraphQL, and I want to describe the data I want I want to make one request and I want to get it back and uh, that's that 's very much what GraphQL is good for and you alluded to it earlier, like we have one endpoint with which we connect and ask for the data, and uh, you know we may provide the data that it needs to gather what we want. And then it'll go out and do what it needs to do and then bring it back to us in the format that we need. And I think, you know, in all my days of developing and working with APIs, I think back to like uh, my days of like working with the Twitter API and you would make a call and like, get some information about a Twitter account and then you get some IDs and then you take those IDs and you have to go make further calls to get the data you really cared about. So you had to make two or three calls to really get to the stuff you cared about. And then, and then you have to paginate through that, you know, the idea that GraphQL can solve that to where I'm just saying like, here's a person And I need to get all their follower IDs. I no longer have to make two or three calls. I'm just making like the one call. So I think that that's definitely like where it's positioned itself. And it becomes interesting to me because, you know, one of the things I always loved about Meteor and DDP was that it was DDP kind of became this fulcrum point, right? Like it's a point at which you could shift into a different technology if you needed to. And so on the front end, we're just making a GraphQL call. But on the GraphQL server, it's handling things behind the scenes how it needs to. You need Mongo? Great. Use Mongo. Uh, You want to use Node to build your GraphQL server? Use Node. You know, you want to use Ruby? Absolutely. Use Ruby instead or Elixir or uh, Phoenix, if that makes sense. Like you can build however you want on the back end and the front end is still querying in the same way and you're still returning data in the format that it needs and you don't have to worry about that back end anymore.
1: Yeah GraphQL is super cool and, and then the other thing then my favorite part of GraphQL is once you've played with Graphical, which is their their dev tooling, it's like I never want to go back to anything else. So so Graphical it it's like SQL Server developer tools or whatever, where you can just you can explore the docs of all of the your your graph um, API, and then you can just ask for whatever you want, and then you you can get that. So while you're developing, you're like, okay, I think that this field has this and stuff. You can just see it right in the dev tool. Yeah. Where you're like, okay, let's let's use Postman and like I don't remember exactly what that data has, but you have to actually send. The HTTP GET request, or you have to send a post, but maybe you don't remember all the fields the post has. So mm-hmm. previously, you had to go actually look in the API code, and and now it's just all exposed to you in GraphQL. I think that after doing that, it's like I really I don't want to go back to things like Postman and and that stuff. I and mean, Postman's great, but I'm a huge fan of graphical. And I think there's even a Chrome extension now, which has. or Maybe that was yeah, that was the Apollo Dev Tools client. It has graphical in there as well as your like a subscriptions viewer so you can see what you subscribe to. Interesting stuff. So again, going back to DevX in twenty sixteen, I think we'll see these things get even better, which is exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm super excited about it. Like, you know, I mentioned Ruby. I, I I still have like coming from Ruby, like doing nine years of work with Ruby development, like I still have a lot of things that pop up in my feed in regards to that. And you know i'm starting to see graphql get mentioned more and more in other communities and i think that that's you know going to be the strong point because you know there's there's things that node is good at and there are things that elixir is good at and i think that the fact that you can easily switch to elixir when it makes sense or switch to cassandra instead of mongo or whatever it is you need like to me that is that is a huge scaling plus side, because you know I, I remember building i always talk about like working at GoDaddy on the the bookkeeping project, and we had this terrible like AV, API development experience and like it was haphazard and scattered, and you know the the JavaScript uh, front end team was just adding in little bits that they could like they were just rendering bits of data to JSON wherever they could like it was just scattered all over the app and like it was just a terrible experience. And uh, trying to do the mobile development in iOS, like we were doing native iOS stuff at the time, like it was hard because what they wanted was slightly different than what we wanted. And even though, like, you know, we're still building kind of a similar app, it was slightly different. And, you know, it took us a lot of time to kind of align on what the API should look like. And then we had to start versioning it and, like, that was a multi-month project. And it was a lot of collaboration between teams. And I think GraphQL just allows you to say like, here's some data available. And then, you know, the, the mobile team or the the uh, JavaScript front-end team for the web, like they can just ask for what exactly they need and we don't have to worry about any of that stuff, so.
1: Yeah, GraphQL and, and is the is a very similar, I guess library that does, it does it very similarly, but I think that they both provide kind of the the cleanest abstraction or separation of actually the data itself with the client. So obviously the data and the client are tightly coupled. Like I want this view to display this data. So going back to the stuff like rest, the client has to know how the data is stored. In the the various rest API endpoints and that's mm-hmm. that's a kind of coupling that that is not very good because it's hard to change the backend I mean you, you mentioned stuff like versioning okay well we we changed how this API works now we have to go change all the clients mm-hmm. um, and I think that gets really uncomfortable and it's just not the best developer experience and so you go to you go to GraphQL where I mean you could do static analysis and see like okay we we want to eliminate this field in our tree or whatever there is some coupling but it's a lot looser in the sense where, okay, I want this data and and I don't care where it comes from. So the client no longer has to know where the data comes from. It Mm -hmm. still has to know the structure of the data. So I think, yeah, I think that's a really powerful paradigm. And we've seen companies like GitHub has a public GraphQL API. I think that's huge for
0: 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And Shopify. Yeah. Another one. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Kind of excited about that. I actually have a project that I'm working on that's in working with Shopify API. So... That sounds exciting. GraphQL instead, you know, if you look at the flip side, right? Like you start to look at things like, what is it? Is it uh, hypermedia? Steve Klabnik worked on some stuff. Anyway, there, there's this idea. I want to say
1: talking like a different than a different protocol.
0: Yeah, I think it's hypermedia. Um, I think AI. I've seen that before. It, it was gaining a little bit of steam here and there a while ago, but I I don't. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, like it's the idea that like, you know, it, it would, it would give you a list of rest endpoints and kind of describe what you could get. And like, then you're able to just say like, this is the data I need. And it could figure out which rest end point to hit. Just look, you know, for any, any kind of like why GraphQL is bad type hosts and start reading on that, and you'll start to see that there are people playing with other ideas around REST and extending REST. But yeah. I, I really think to me, part of this is like a mindshare thing, right? And this is why I think DDP didn't make sense in the long term for Meteor, is because you really have to change a lot of people's opinions about what an API should look and function like. As a small startup trying to figure out a way to bring in revenue, that's a hard job to do, right? Like that's going to be a hard task. And so like MDG shifting to GraphQL as their data layer made a lot more sense because you have a large company solving real-world problems with their APIs by using GraphQL, and they're handling the part of changing people's minds, right? It's not even, I don't even think it's intentional. Like I don't think anyone gave Lee, Byron a mandate to say, just go out there and evangelize all the time to everybody so that this can become like the future of like web API standards. But it's definitely happening because they certainly have a platform where everyone's like, well, you know, they're scaling up to a certain level and like, I certainly don't need to scale anywhere to that level, but if this can help fix some of the problems I'm seeing or I might run into, then it starts to become an interesting technology. And like, that's to me like you're just trying to change people's opinions give your technology a try and then it becomes better for everyone that's trying it because you know we're all working together and hopefully building something great and so i think that's that's another reason why i think you should give graphql a look because i don't think like i haven't necessarily run across or heard any credible alternatives uh that seem to help and solve a lot of the problems that are out there right now
1: yeah. Other than Falcor, I think Falcor and GraphQL are very similar. Well, yeah. I, just, I think Falcor needs more love. <laughs> it's not as, as evangelized, I guess, but I think it's, it's simpler than GraphQL sometimes. Um, and it can be just as powerful. And obviously yeah. Netflix, Netflix is behind that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So check them both out. I think they're both better than rest um, for, for most things. I mean, almost anything I can think of, Unless you're doing like some super real-time stuff, but then you're still not using REST. So and now GraphQL has subscriptions, so maybe we just GraphQL everything. But I'm a fan. And yeah, I think that's where Meteor's heading. Yeah, I'd love to ask what your so I know Abi wrote that uh post on tem tips getting off Meteor and we okay. talked a bunch about DDP. What would be your I guess the best alternative or way of not being as reliant on Meteor when it comes to the real-time aspect and DDP. Like if you had to move a project,
0: oh, gosh, in like, that direction. So, my answer to that is like, I don't, I don't need real time. Like I, I guess I, I look back and I think like, what things am I needing real time for? Right. And, uh, let's take foot cardigan for example. Right. They're selling sock subscriptions. Like, maybe, maybe you want a little bit of real time because you have a sock inventory, and like they're selling subscriptions, but they also sell like one off fun socks. Maybe we want a real time count of how many socks are left or like how many of a size are left okay like I'll just say it like you have like three general things, so if you've ever kind of bought into cucumber or looked at any of their stuff, like you pop the y stack and you try to think about like. Why am I writing this feature? And generally it comes down to like uh, managing costs, increasing revenue, or protecting revenue. And I think that the hope there is that you're increasing revenue by letting customers know like, hey, you should buy now because it's almost gone. Like That's one little feature. I, I think I'd almost find a different way to build it. I don't know what the alternative would be necessarily. I haven't looked very deeply, to be honest, because I just don't... I don't know that it matters all that much you know there's there's apps that matter like uber for real time or like a two-way chat but i'm not entirely sold that you need it all the time everywhere you know so i don't know it's an interesting question i, I tend to maybe rely on an outside service if i'm going to need that maybe you know
1: yeah. Yeah. I was just curious. I, cause I have an app that's just a little pet app. It's, it's a little auction thing. And I, I haven't put much time into it, but I, I've been thinking about, cause I ran into just weirdness with the meteor tool. Cause I, I mean, I was on meteor one, one and I just recently upgraded it to one to four. So we're good now, but it was just like, all this weirdness was happening with one, one. And I was like, it'd be nice to move this to Webpack and just play around with some stuff. But a meteor account system, it's so nice as well as just the, uh, you know, the Insta real time stuff. I was like, I, I know, I know there's like, like feathers and I could roll my own with just web sockets, but I'm still trying to figure that out. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. I, I think in the long term, like the media development group still sees real time as something that's interesting. I do think that the GraphQL team and the Apollo team will figure something out. And like that'll definitely be an option down the road. And I mean, if you look at or the early days of DDP, it's pseudo real time, right? Like that's the best way we could describe it because we're not we're not getting the data updates as they change. They were doing uh, a pull and diff, so every ten seconds they would look at the data that the server was concerned about, that the client cared about, and uh, re pull it and see if anything changed. And if it did, they would feed that down the pipe and. I mean, you could certainly look at something like that. I think you're right. Feathers uh, is, is maybe the most interesting there as far as like if you do need something real time, like that is definitely a major goal. And so we're running out of time on this episode, but we did have some bonus stuff that we'll just kind of mention, um, I think that are coming down the pipe. React Fiber, super interesting. Basically, they're, they're re-implementing, I believe, like the the way things get rendered in the front end
1: yeah they have a react uh, a reconciler which i think is is a stack-based approach so it's recursive which is why you get all the really long like warnings and errors in react where the just the stacks are like super long so those should be shortened which i think is cool and easier yeah. from a from a dev perspective but it also should up the performance a lot um, and i know inferno i've seen people on the react team mention if they were to make react from scratch now they would have made something very similar to inferno So that's another kind of React Fiber implementation, and I've seen people on the React team talk about you know 2017 will be the year of year of React Fiber as well as Fiber implementations. So yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, so shout out there.
0: It looks super interesting, and they just hired the uh, one of the guys that worked on created Inferno. They hired on to Facebook, and I'm assuming he's going to work on the React team. So that'll be kind of interesting to see what shakes out of that and then i don't know like styling is a huge question mark still like in the javascript land like uh, css and javascript and a style guy i don't even i don't even know all the options there's like, like styled components yeah
1: um there's a bunch of these just different using like template strings and even inline styles and there's there's a yeah there's a lot of debate yeah if you go to I forget all the people I follow a bunch of random people on Twitter that all seem to discuss this all the time. And it's, it's a hot topic. People cannot decide on CSS modules even. So there's a bunch of fun stuff there. Did, uh, did Sean Larkin ever tweet back at you? Check that real quick. And then I also got uh, a Josh Owens. Have you gone serverless email for creator Conf. So creator Conf is coming. Everyone should indeed, check it out.
0: Indeed. I'm super excited about that. We got one of the guys uh that works for Serverless, so they got some funding and he's gonna come give a talk and nice I'm super excited about that. Uh no, no, I didn't get any favorites or anything from Sean oh, Larkin. I did use the hashtag webpack, but it could be I don't know what part of the world he's in, maybe he's sleeping.
1: Yeah. It could be sleeping. <laughs> it's also New Year's New Year's Eve, so yeah. It's all good. Yeah. We still love you,
0: Sean. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, tuning in. We will be back uh, next year doing this uh, doing this podcast, keeping it up. If if you find it interesting, give us a a tweet. Uh, let people know about the show. We don't advertise anywhere. I actually don't even have any advertisers uh, for 2017 at this point. So, if you're interested, let me know. Uh, and as always, like keep posting things to Crater. That's where we're going to be getting the news from for each week. So, Crater.io. Happy New Year's. Yep. Same to you, Ben. All right, guys. Bye. See ya. This has been a Space Dojo production. You can find out more information about Space Dojo at spacedojo.com. It's easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. That's S P A C E. D-O-J-O yeah. dot com.